You're listening to VO Stories, episode 65. Hey, happy Thursday, my VO peeps. Today, you're going to hear from a top New York casting director as to what she sees working for successful voiceover talent and more. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tina Zaremba, voiceover talent, mentor, and good old-fashioned storyteller. I believe we all have a story to tell, and we can all learn from one another. I created this podcast for you, the VO artist who's ready to embrace all that your VO journey has to offer. You'll be inspired, informed, and transformed as you learn from industry experts, VO talents, and my insights from 15 years in the industry, having voiced national commercials to promos and everything in between. Success in voiceovers is more than just a snazzy voice, and this podcast will help show you the way. Thanks for listening. What's up, everybody? As I mentioned, today I'm talking with top casting director and author Jen Rudin. Jen will share how she found herself in the role of casting director, why she personally gets where we as actors are coming from, and what inspired her to write her amazing book, Confessions of a Casting Director, and way more. I'm excited for you to hear this. I had such a great time talking with her. She's such a down-to-earth, extraordinary human being. You're in for a treat. Here's our chat. Jen, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Yes, happy to. Always. I love podcasts. They're so fun. Awesome. I appreciate it. So I want to start off by asking, how did you find yourself in the role of casting director? Sure. So I grew up in New York City and was a professional child actor from age 8 to 17. And ironically, auditioning for voiceover was um, the least of all the evils. I, I loved doing voiceovers as a kid. I was Ramona Quimby's sister Beezus in some books, some Ramona books. And my very first audition was like, was like on hold for a national campaign um, for a bank. So I love voiceovers. I always hated auditioning. I I hated, uh, I just hated it. I found it very stressful. And when I was like 12, I was at a final callback for an after school special. And I looked at the casting director and she seemed to have a really fun job because she was she was uh, facilitating this very stressful day for the kids. It was like group A and group B, and she was making it fun. And I, I thought that's probably what I'll do. I have a photographic memory. I know who replaces who in what Broadway show and, you know, had like a two for and playbook collection that I still have from the 80s. So I thought that's probably what I'll do. I'll probably have, at the time I had a really good friend from theater camp, but we were going to have prior Rudin casting. We always talked about it. And then she ended up in production and and now she's actually getting Wendy, Wendy Pryor Fentress, my very good friend, is getting back into acting. But we always like, we're like, we'll have our casting company. So, so that's how it happened. And then during college, I went to the University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I quit my acting career. I'd had it. And I went to the Midwest, which was very, um, so I don't want to say sobering. It was like good to like see America and not be such a snob from the city. And during my summers, I interned for Meg Simon, who's head of Warner Brothers Casting. And at the time she had her own company. And I also interned for Marsha Schulman, who had her own company and then went off to Fox in LA. So I had these great women casting mentors and then after college, I auditioned for a couple more years and it was really terrible because I was like- Why was it really terrible? Because you're like, a child actor. Yeah. So it was easy to get agents again because they all knew me, but it was right. so different in your 20s because when you're 12 and you could just put on Converse and overalls and go to the audition, it was one thing. But here I was temping, running around the city, 
I would like take taxis to these commercial auditions that I couldn't afford. And then I'd get to the auditions and like all the women were gorgeous and looked great. And I was like a mess. And I also didn't do, like I wasn't doing the actual work on the actual audition scenes. So I was kind of blowing my auditions and finally said to myself, this is stupid. I'm going to go into casting. And so I actually spent a year at Innovative Artists. This was 20 years ago before really the internet was, was a thing. Worked there for a year. And the agent I worked for said, you know, you're really smart. I will help you become an agent if you want to do that. But if you feel you need to go back to casting, then you should. And after a year, I did. And then I worked for Susan Shopmaker, who had a lot of commercial business, including the Verizon campaign back in around 9-11. We, we had a lot of commercial business. And then she said, you know, you're really ambitious. You should just go to LA and get a studio job. And after a season at Ensemble Studio Theater, after 9-11 happened, I was poor. I was broke. I was, I was down in the dumps. And I went out to LA with my great New York Times reviews of all the plays I'd cast at EST. And I got hired by Disney to cast The Voices. Um, wow. for the animation division. So it was interesting to have a new chapter begin after after 9-11 and I moved to LA and I turned 30 and I learned to drive and you know I was head of a department for five years and got to work on some great projects and then came back to New York to work for Disney Broadway and then got laid off in the recession in 2009 and the next day formed uh, Jen Rudin Casting. So it's almost 10 years now. So that's my life story. In a nutshell, there you have it, yeah. folks. We're done. No. So were you, I want to go back for a moment, because you said at age 12, you kind of always knew you would do casting. Were there females in your life that had such clarity? Because in my mind, most kids at 12 don't have that clarity. Yeah. I mean, my manager was a woman. The casting directors I was auditioning for were women. And I just seemed, I had a lot of good um mentors in show business, you know, gay men and, and, and women, you know, that was sort of like the theater camp world was musical theater camp world at stage or manor. Those were, that was that set of role models. And then, yeah, there were a lot of, you know, casting is primarily a women's profession. Um, it, you, you know, it's like, it's a, it's like mommying, you're diplomatic, you're helping the project along, you're consulting, you're hand holding, you're problem solving. And for some reason it's, um, it's, it's so much, it's always been a very strong profession for women. So, uh, so it was not like I broke any boundaries there. I will say when I was an executive at Disney and feature animation, it was all men. There were mm. very few women in any position of power sitting at the table in our staff meetings. And I was surrounded by, you know, CalArts guys who were animators who'd never, you know, it was just, that's where I was like, oh gosh, I am a fish out of water. Mm -hmm. But of course, I had to learn a lot about animation. We were transitioning between 3D and 2D at the time, and it was just a not a not a great time for the studio um, in terms of our our box office. We we were up against you know that was Warner Brothers had Happy Feet and DreamWorks had Madagascar, and we were just competing with every studio. But I that was where I felt like oh I'm a woman in a very male profession. But other than that, yeah, I had good mentors growing up and. These casting women, Marsha Schulman and Meg Simon, I mean, just sitting on the floor fi filing their headshots and listening to them on the phone, that's it. I learned everything. You know? mm. So when you were, I want to, of course, talk about your book, but you mentioned when you were in Wisconsin. I'm from the Midwest, Michigan, which is basically Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, sons, the Green Bay Packers, though. Uh, did you, you said that that was a learning experience for you and very humbling experience for me coming to New York was that. So 
how was going to Wisconsin? Because in my head, I was like, huh? Going to I know. West? I understand, like, on the Upper East Side, I had a lot of friends that went to Brown and, and Tufts and all the schools on the East Coast. And I had friends that went to Michigan and friends that went to Wisconsin, and they raved and raved and raved about these places. And you have to understand, it was 1990. I had been acting for so many years. I really needed to get out of New York City. I really needed a perspective and a change. I was very bitter. It was such a competitive time to be um, auditioning. I mean, now it's worse for child actors because you can self-tape from Kentucky. But at the time, it was just, it was very brutal. And I thought, I, I need to get out of the city and have like a normal college experience. I'd gone to professional children's school, which was a school for kids that went to school, American Ballet and Juilliard and acting. And so I was surrounded by all this competition. So getting to be an undergrad at the University of Wisconsin, living in the in-state dorms with, you know, people from Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa and a couple of, of you know, Jews from the East Coast was great. It was great. And I, 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 I was kind of, I wrote theater reviews for one of the school newspapers and I was so harsh because I was like growing, growing <laughs> up, you know, reading Frank Rich and John Simon. So my mother, I would send these reviews home to her at this poor theater department in Madison, which was, you know, not great at the time. I think it's better. And she'd say to me, you know, Jennifer, it's just like university theater. Like you don't have to be so critical of these poor MFA students. But I had fun, you know, I had such a good time and I met great people. And I just, I, I would, you know, I love the Midwest and I think that's our audience, you know, mm. it's like, that's the audience. Now I did get to Michigan. I taught a class there and I was like, Oh, this is Ann Arbor. Finally, I'm seeing what everybody's like, you know, going on about. But Madison's beautiful. It's a magical place. And I think about it every day. And I've been back with my book and been back to talk to the theater students. And it's such a thrill to return there. You mentioned your book, Confessions of a Casting Director, which I read and love. And I grew up the same time as you. So I love that you like love the Brady Bunch and Little House on the Prairie and all that. What was the impetus behind that? Sure. So in January of 2009, so exactly 10 years ago, I was working for Disney Theatrical. I was the head of all the casting for the Broadway tours, uh, the Broadway shows and the tours. And they sent me on a 10 city uh, search across the U.S. for a new Ariel and Little Mermaid. And so I was in these cities conducting open calls and every single girl that came in, there was some feedback I wanted to give her, whether it was that she was wearing, you know, the wrong cut dress for her body type or singing the the wrong cut of the song and I started taking notes and I got back to to work to Disney and I said to my boss Tom Schumacher who's still my good friend I said like I gotta write this book I mean I see so many things that that could help these actors but there's no time in these auditions and certainly not in an open call and he said you absolutely must write the book these are your stories you know just make sure that mm. Disney looks good you know in a good light so I started penning the book and had uh a pretty good outline. And then when I got laid off, I put the book aside because I really needed to, to figure out my company and what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Cause I was like, not even 40 and like, uh, it's the wanted to work. So I put the book aside and then in Italy for my 40th birthday, my now husband took me to Italy and we were, you know, wandering around Rome and the Amalfi coast. And I said, you know, this book is in my head. I think I need to write it. And he said, you should. So I figured I would self-publish and through a, a friend from college, I, I had a meeting over at Harper Collins and this, uh, Lisa Sharkey, another mentor, she, she liked my concept, even though it was kind of dated and she made me, and I'm saying made me because I think everybody thinks writing a book is easy. She made me go back and do a whole nother proposal. And I worked really hard on my proposal. And then I sent some sample chapters. She was testing to see my writing skills to see if they were strong enough or did I need to hire 
somebody to write the book with me. And I will never forget the day I saw that email. It was like the day that you probably find out when you get an amazing part. You know, you're just, you see the email come in and your heart starts beating and it's the Carper Collins is going to publish my book. And I, I just couldn't, I, I was beside myself. And then of course I went straight into pilot season casting. And so the next two months, um, were in pilot season casting and more stuff was coming in about the book. You know, I was seeing more things happen in the audition room, taking more notes. So, um, so that's it. So the book just turned five and, you know, I use it all the time. Anytime I speak to actors and if anybody emails me with a question, I say, please buy the book. It's not that I'm trying to make money. It's that I wrote it for actors and there's different chapters. As you know, there's a voiceover chapter, musical yeah. theater chapter and the do's and don'ts and the highs and the lows and epic audition stories. And it's meant to be a book that actors can keep in their bag and refer to and I take the advice too you know I was just in LA having some meetings and I took my own advice I was early got my hair done I had my manicure I had my nice clothing on like I took it as seriously as an actor would take it you know that that's mm -hmm. advice for anybody in any industry like how do you show up at a meeting and have your have your life together so there's a lot of great nuggets in there. I was kind of thinking, well, I'm just voiceover. So how is this going to apply to me? But I was actually really impressed that beyond the voiceover chapter, there's stuff to take away from it. Seeing that our audience is, the majority of them are voiceover talent. Can you share a couple of things that you've seen that folks can do differently in auditions or conduct themselves differently before they get to that voiceover audition? Sure. I think, you know, voiceover is so saturated. You know, everybody in the world wants to break in and nobody knows how freaking hard it is. You know, I always say to an actor, if you could spend 10 minutes observing Kenan Thompson in a recording studio, he did Rock Dog for me. It's like, watch how he watch what they do in there, you'll see that it, how hard it is because you're telling a story with your voice. You need to know when to breathe. You need to know you know, what level is it feature animation or TV animation? Or is it a commercial? You need to know all those things. I think one of the things I do see is that everybody seems to want to like rush into making a demo tape right away. Oh, now, bougie, I, I yeah, agree. it's crazy. And so I wrote a column for backstage for two years called Speakeasy. And I think you can Google those columns filled with advice. And one of my last uh, columns, I interviewed Anthony Mendez, who's the Jane the Virgin narrator. Oh yeah. And he, um, he also taped a, a little toast for my wedding. I surprised my husband at, at the cake with, you know, when Jennifer Ann Rudin was a little girl, he did the whole thing for me, which is great. Looking for her prince. Anyway, Anthony's a great guy. And one of the things he said is he said, if I could talk to my younger self, I would have waited five years before making that demo. So I think that's the first thing. Like, I'll teach these voiceover classes at Actors Connection, these one-night-only classes. Yeah. And most of the time, people just want to know, how do I make a demo? Should I make a demo? And it's like, first of all, demos, it's very expensive. And second of all, it's like your headshot. It's very important, but it's really in a, it's a investment in your career. So that's the first thing I would say to people, just relax about the demo. You need to actually both spend time in the recording studio and also do your homework and listen to people or know what you're doing, you know, it's really difficult. And I hear dry mouth all the time, even from professionals. I'm like, sip some water. Um, yeah. You know, you want to take your jewelry off. You want to, it's just, it's a tough thing. So that's one thing. Everybody wants to make a demo and you should relax about that. The second thing is that I hate, hate, hate when people slate in character. It really bothers me. Um, and that's like the million dollar question. Everybody always wants to know, yeah. you know, now I think you should just say your name 
the way you speak in real life because I, I want to hear what your regular voice sounds like before you launch into your audition. And sometimes that's all I'm going to hear before I hear your audition. So that it's like, yeah, Tina Zaremba. Like I can't, <laughs> it just drives me crazy when people do that. So I just think, you know, and, and do your research that now we have telephones. You can practice recording into your phone. Oh my gosh. In my days, there was no such thing. I mean, you could maybe tape record yourself on a tape recorder, but now you can you can practice at home. You can make it sound good, and you can really curate, you know, the self tape auditions. And you just couldn't do that a few years ago. Do you feel like uh, voiceover talent should find a lane uh, in the beginning and focus on that, or should they become familiar with all of it right away? Well, that's also like an actor saying that they want to. Um, do all three things that they find themselves, you know, I'm facile in everything. I'm musical theater and I'm TV and I'm voiceover. I don't know, you know, LA is filled with animation opportunities. New York, not so much. New York's a little bit more, you know, audiobooks and straightforward voiceover. So maybe if you're in LA, you can focus on animation. But I do think you really need to take classes and spend time in the booth and make sure that you take a class that is small enough that you can get into the booth. And it's not this huge class where you're not going to get a chance to work because you don't know until you try and you certainly don't know until you listen back and hear what you sound like. Yeah, I think that that is extremely important. I regret that, you know, I had a background in acting and thought that, oh, well, that'll be fine. And it was, it's a completely different beast than being on stage. I mean, you're not speaking to someone in the hundredth row. Mm -hmm. The microphone is the ear. So I couldn't agree more the value of classes yeah and also just to to do your research i mean you can watch big mouth on netflix you can watch bob's burgers you can watch all the disney animated movies you know there's so many opportunities to do your research about the genre what's also really tricky is that half the time you get these auditions and you don't even know what it's so it's so confidential you don't even know what the heck you're reading for that's really hard i try to do i mean listen i love to do in person auditions but i got to say like really helps me to listen to mp3s as a first step and then do some callbacks so i'm i'm as and then i'll give out more information so i'm also not making the problem any better because i'm sending out really general things too but i also just try to give some direction so the actor has some semblance of what they're supposed to do with this copy. And the actors that you are listening to, are they strictly from agents or are they actors that you have worked with? It really depends on what the project is. I will put it out into the world, you know. I'll tell a good story. There's a show called Bing, which is a UK import. You're going to see it at some point very soon. I can't announce what network it's on. Just as a, we were finding the little boy just really through the voiceover agents in the first round. But then as things weren't working out, I said to the producer, I got to just put it out there. I got to list it on backstage. I've got to put it out in breakdowns and actors access. I need to get little boys around the country aware of this project. And what I did is I had the little boys not even read the copy. I had them just make a little video and tell me their name, their age, and their favorite animated character. And from there, voice director and I chose the boys that we wanted to hear read the scenes. The boy that got it had not even a manager at the time. He was from LA. That was the other thing. I said, we can't just limit our search to New York. We have to be global. We'll go to Miami. We'll go to Dallas. We'll go to Denver. We'll find this kid. We found him. Turns out he booked the role and he's also starring in a great show for ABC. Like he went up, up, up because he's a talented little nine-year-old boy, Santino Barnard. He's on uh, The Kids Are All Right for ABC. 
And he got it. And it was because I didn't, I had to be grassroots about it. I had to get the word out. So I actually use Actors Access a lot because especially in this world of self-taping so that people can really have an opportunity. But if it's voiceover and it's specific, if it's an Asian American search, I'm going to go through Facebook and all the theater companies. I'm going to do the old fashioned grassroots stuff to get the word out. Um, But if it's something huge, like a feature animated movie, nine times out of 10, it's going to be some offers and it's going to be some casting sessions. It's going to be people I mostly know. It's probably going to be in LA. So it really, it it honestly depends on what the the project is. Definitely hear you on that. And it's great to hear that's Catherine. You mentioned you listen first to MP3s and then maybe you'll bring someone in. Are you listening to quality? Does it matter to you what the quality of the recording studio sounds like to you? You know, look, you can build a big at-home studio if, if it's really a part of your business. I've listened to stuff on iPhones. It's fine with yeah. me as long as it's in a quiet space, you know? I mean, okay. uh, it's the same thing with a Skype audition or a self-tape audition. The self-tape might be the worst quality, but I can spot if, if somebody has some talent and then you just redo it in an actual audition room and it's better. So I don't think people need to go nuts, nuts, nuts with the microphone and, and, and building a, a voiceover booth in their closet, unless you really are making enough money to, um, to make it worthwhile. I think it's okay to just use a phone as a first step when you're starting out. Are there any characteristics in voiceover actors or actors in general that you see a, a pattern or a theme for those that are successful? so hard to know you know there's voiceover actors in LA who work every day in animation I mean they are busy 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 you really just have to make those connections you know it's like anything else like you know you do a you do a job you connect with the voice director the voice director is going to keep your mind in the future the casting director is going to keep your mind in the future you get a great agent and you book something and they sign you then you're at the top of their list so it's chipping away at the boulder it is chip chip chipping away at the boulder every day you know small steps forward i have go through the same thing with my career taking steps forward But I think the relationships, and of course you want to be early to your session, and of course you want to know what food you can and can't eat, and what's the best for your voice and professional thing. I mean, it's not, just because you can wear leggings and go into the voiceover booth doesn't mean it it has any less value or importance than an on-camera booking. Mm, I'm glad you said that, because I do feel, even when I'm home auditioning, I found that I deliver a stronger performance when I dress up for it as if I was going to see someone such as yourself. It's important to, to take it seriously. I don't like when people come to voiceover auditions looking sloppy because I think, what if I was recording you on camera, you know, for Frankenweenie or Tim Burton's movie, when we did that voice casting and the same for the princess and the frog, we recorded everybody on a video camera because the directors wanted to see what people look like. And that threw a lot of people for a loop because they thought they were just going in on a voiceover session. You know, it's like, you never know. So you need to look presentable. As my mother says, I always put on a little lipstick in case you meet Paul Newman at the supermarket. That was always my whole childhood. She would be like, I'm going to the supermarket and I might meet Paul Newman. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and that's true. Where you know. It's like, you know, you just never know. So I think, you know, you've got to take it seriously, even if it, even if it's a great profession and you can be comfy, right? It's still, it's work. I know that I interviewed Steve Zern Kilton, who um, does the law and order in the criminal justice. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he was my first interview for my backstage column and he begins the day, of course, you know, after he showers and has breakfast and, and all that, he reads poetry as a way to 
warm himself up and get his get himself warmed up and also get into the spirit of of the voiceover and whatever else he has to audition for that day. I think that's a great tip. I tell everybody, kids too, to read some poetry out loud. Be a kind person. I will say this. Um, I'll give, my father always says, you know, you only have your name, so leave a good name. And, you know, he's a rabbi, so it, it comes with that extra value. You only have your name. So be a nice person, be kind, be professional, right? Don't be, don't be a diva. Don't be a douche. Don't be a jerk. Because today's assistants are tomorrow's casting executives. And so you just have to be, you got to be nice. You, I want to hire nice actors. You only have your name. Be a nice person. Be professional. Jen is so right. Today's assistant are tomorrow's casting executives. Be a kind person. We all want to work and be with people who are kind, who treat us with respect. It's just human decency. Now, as I mentioned, I've read Jen's book, Confessions of a Casting Director. You can buy it on Amazon, where you'll see all the amazing reviews. Guys, this book truly is a great resource, so I highly recommend you check it out. Also, Jen's website is jenrudin.com, and she's a contact form on it if you want to reach out to her. So thank you so much for listening. Until next time, here's to owning our voices.